MSW Media. News was wearing daily beans, daily beans, daily beans, daily beans. Hello. And welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, October 16th, 2020. Today, Elliot Broidy is set to plead guilty in the 1MDB case during his arraignment on October 20th. Barr and the White House have to convince Judge Reggie Walton that Trump's tweet declassifying all things Russia wasn't for reals. The New York Post story completely falls apart. The California GOP refuses to remove fake ballot drop boxes. The Republican governor of Massachusetts supports Joe Biden for president. And Joe and Kamala raised nearly $383 million in September. The Trump administration's private COVID briefings fueled a massive stock sell-off. And Lindsey Graham breaks the law the night before he gavels past Senate rules to advance the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. I'm your host, A.G. Hey, everybody. We have a great episode for you today. Uh, we will be talking with the Democratic candidate for New Jersey's 4th District, Stephanie Schmid, for the Flip It Blue segment. And we'll be speaking with a doctor who became a Canadian citizen after Trump was elected in 2016, and he wrote a book about it, too. And I'll bring you the good news with Amy Carrero at the end. That should be a lot of fun. And today, Dana Goldberg and I spent an hour with Mary Trump covering a final episode, or an epilogue, if you will, of the MSW book club for the Mary Trump book, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the Most Dangerous Man in the World. That will be available to patrons on Saturday. So check that out. Um, so much fun, and it was just so pleasant to talk to Mary today. Uh, I'm looking forward to that, but we do have a lot of news to get to, so let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, lead story today, Elliot Broidy, former deputy chair of the RNC, he was the finance chair, deputy finance chair, he is set to plead guilty, as we determined or predicted that he would, in the 1MDB case uh, during his arraignment on October 20th. He's being charged with one count of conspiracy to... Uh, be a foreign agent. And <laughs> a lot of folks are wondering if he's, you know, trying to rush this through to get a pardon. I think if he were going for a pardon, he wouldn't be pleading guilty. He wouldn't be cooperating. He could be cooperating in the investigations into Trump's inaugural because he worked on that as well. Uh, and also, um, you know, worked closely with the Trump campaign. And we know, you know, recently Brad Parscale uh, has been probably also getting ready to cooperate with the federal government. I don't think any of this is going to go down before the election, uh, but it is good to know justice is still rolling on, though slowly. It's grinding finely. It's just taking a while. Uh, but it's designed to do that, so we will be here to cover it when it happens. And Barr and the White House today have to convince Judge Reggie Walton that Trump's tweet declassifying all things Russia wasn't serious. Uh, if you'll remember, October 6th, Trump tweeted out, uh, declassify everything that has to do with the Russia hoax and the Hillary emails, blah, blah, blah. And immediately, uh, Jason Leopold and Epic, who have a FOIA suit for them, you know, to get the unredacted Mueller report in front of Judge Reggie Walton right now, and some of those redactions have already been released. Uh, we've reported those on this show. But now they're saying, well, you know, Trump just, that's a waiver. Uh, tweets from the White House, the tweets from his account are official, uh, according to his Trump's own arguments. So 
uh, if he wants to, you know, waive all of the redactions in the Mueller report for FOIA reasons, then we should be able to get the full unredacted Mueller report. And uh, early in the week, we told you Judge Reggie Walton had ordered the Justice Department to respond, and they did, and said, nah, he's just kidding, bro. And then he also ordered the White House to confer with the Justice Department and determine what their policy is. And, you know, on this, and, and Judge Reggie Walton referred to it as a waiver. Uh, you know, what is your response to your the White House's waiver of these FOIA redactions uh, in, in the Mueller report case? And they're specifically only looking at the Mueller report case. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if more lawsuits came up to, you know, remove redaction bars from, for example, the Mueller memos in the BuzzFeed case uh, in, you know, everything that's um, the underlying materials from the grand jury, the 302s. Uh, the the notes from Brennan that Ratcliffe seemed to have released, uh, there could be more lawsuits coming to unredact or lift the redaction bars on all of those based on this tweet. Uh, so we'll find out today. Uh, and we'll report on that Monday morning, first thing, what Reggie Walton decides, if anything, at this juncture. Um, let's see. What else is going on in the news today? The Biden campaign on Wednesday rejected a New York Post report about Joe Biden Jr. and his son Hunter that the nation's leading social media companies deemed so dubious that they limited access to the article on their platforms, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, the report, appearing just three weeks before the election, this is what we talked to Garrett Graff about yesterday, was based on material provided by allies of Trump, who have tried for months to tarnish Biden over his son Hunter. It claimed, the story, that Joe Biden had met with an advisor to Ukrainian energy company whose board Hunter Biden served on, and a spokesman for the Biden campaign, Andrew Bates, said Biden's office schedule showed no meeting between Biden and the advisor. Uh, quote, we have reviewed Joe Biden's official schedules from that time and no meeting, as alleged by The New York Post, ever took place. The Post report described a, a unusual path by which the newspaper had obtained the email correspondence, quote unquote, email correspondence that involved two of Mr. Trump's staunchest allies, Rudy Giuliani and former uh, and uh, Bannon, Steve Bannon, former White House advisor. The article said the emails were part of a trove of material on a laptop computer that was, quote unquote, dropped off for repairs at a shop in Delaware. Uh, that's Mr. Biden's home state and just left there. Uh, so the store owner had made a copy of the correspondence and provided it to the lawyer for Giuliani. And Mr. Bannon, who was arrested in August and charged with fraud, informed the New York Post about the hard drive. And on Sunday, Giuliani, who had been accused this election cycle of taking information from Russian agents, and I will say accused, but also proved to have been taking Russian disinformation from agents, namely Dirk Koch, who has now been sanctioned by Steve Mnuchin. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we've already talked about how Russian you have to be. Um, and the U.S. Treasury called Dirkach a Russian agent with ties to the Kremlin and the GRU. And they're saying that uh, Giuliani provided a copy to the New York Post. And some security experts expressed skepticism about the provenance and authenticity of the emails. That's putting it lightly. The Times reported last January that Burisma had been hacked by the same Russian GRU unit that was one of the two groups that hacked the, the DNC and the DCCC in 2016. That happened. And last month, United States intelligence an analysts contacted several people with knowledge of the Burisma hack for further information after they'd picked up chatter that stolen Burisma emails would be leaked in the form of an October surprise. They knew this was coming. And among their chief concerns, according to people familiar with the discussions, was that the Burisma material would be leaked alongside forged materials in an attempt to hurt Biden. 
This is exactly what Russian hackers did when they dumped real emails alongside forgeries ahead of the 2017 French elections. A slight twist on Russia's 2016 playbook when they siphoned uh, the DNC emails through fake personas on Twitter and WikiLeaks. So it, it, basically what they do is they, t- they hack into Burisma, take a couple of emails that are, you know, totally but not like just, you know, have no wrongdoing in them. And then put those alongside some fake ones that they've produced and say, look, they're all real. And people are convinced of this. Um, and, you know, we spoke to Garrett Graff yesterday. This is exactly the tabletop hack and dump exercise he performed um, over the summer. And the California Republican Party said Wednesday it will not comply with the state's cease and desist order over unofficial ballot drop boxes placed in at least four counties escalating a brewing political showdown ahead of the election. The unauthorized ballot boxes, which state officials have called illegal, have been found in at least four counties across the state, L.A., Ventura, Orange, and Fresno. Quote, ballot harvesting program will continue, California Republican Party spokesman Hector Barajas said in a statement to CNN. The deadline for the California Republican Party to comply or respond is Thursday night. Barajas said Wednesday in an interview with CNN affiliate KABC that, quote, a lot of ballot boxes have been distributed statewide and the party may expand the program because it's going well. We're going to continue this program, Barajas emphasized in the interview. If you want to take us to court, we'll see you in court. Trump earlier this week encouraged the GOP not to comply and fight the order. And Republican Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker is not backing Trump. His communications director, Lizzie Guyton, telling CNN, or a CNN affiliate, excuse me, on Wednesday, quote, the governor, the governor cannot support Donald Trump for president and is focused on seeing Massachusetts through the pandemic. Um, this is what she wrote in an email. He'll leave the election analysis to the pundits. At a news conference earlier Wednesday, the governor said he would take a pass when asked who he was supporting for president. Baker's office later clarified to say he was taking a pass on the question, not on voting. That's according to WCVB. That's that CNN affiliate. In March, Baker declined to tell the state house news service whom he had voted for in the state's Republican primary, but he said he didn't vote for Trump. And the governor had previously said he didn't vote for Trump in 2016 either. And Rose Giuliani uh, did a uh, has a piece in in Vanity Fair about the fact that she's supporting Joe Biden for president. And speaking of Joe, Joe and Kamala raised a record-shattering $383 million in September. They surpassed the previous record of $365 million uh, set by Joe and Kamala in August. And the, the record before that was about $160 million, $160, $170 million set by Obama in September of 2000. It's either 2008 or 2012. I don't remember which one. I think it was... 2008. So we got to keep it up. Uh, we have a link for just special for, for Beans listeners. Uh, and that's on my personal Twitter, at uh, Allison Gill, two L's in Allison, two L's in Gill. You'll see a video in the pinned tweet and the link uh, to donate is there. And there's you can fill in your own amount if um, you can donate any amount there. So let's help October break the September record. And on the afternoon of February 24th, President Trump declared on Twitter that coronavirus was very much under control in the United States, one of numerous rosy statements that he and his advisors made at the time about the worsening epidemic. This is back in February. He even added an observation for investors. Stock market starting to look very good to me. 
but hours earlier, senior members of the president's economic team privately addressing board members of the conservative Hoover Institution were less confident. Thomas Phillipson, a senior economic advisor to Trump, told the group he could not yet estimate the effects of the virus on the American economy. To some in the group, the implication was that an outbreak could prove worse than Mr. Phillipson and other Trump administration advisors were signaling. Uh, The next day, board members, many of them Republican donors, got another taste of government uncertainty from Larry Kudlow. He's the director of the National Economic Council. Hours after he boasted on CNBC the virus was contained in the United States and it's pretty close to airtight, Kudlow delivered a more ambiguous private message. He asserted the virus was contained in the U.S. to date, but now we just don't know. And according to a document describing the sessions obtained by the New York Times, that's where you can find these comments by Kudlow. The document, written by a hedge fund consultant who attended the three-day gathering at Hoover's board, was stark. Quote, what struck me, the consultant wrote, was that nearly every official we heard from raised the virus as a point of concern, totally unprovoked. Interviews with eight people who either received copies of the memo or who were briefed on the aspects of it as it spread among investors in New York and elsewhere provide a glimpse of how elite traders had access to information from the administration that helped them gain financial advantages during the chaotic three days when global markets were teetering. But the memo's overarching message, that a devastating virus outbreak in the United States was increasingly likely to occur, and that government officials were more aware of the threat than they were letting on publicly, proved to be accurate. The memo was written by William Callahan, a hedge fund veteran and member of the Hoover Board, a research institution at Stanford University that studies the economy, national security, and other issues. Hoover has been uh, directed since September by Condoleezza Rice, the Secretary of State under GW. Its board includes the media mogul Rupert Murdoch, venture capitalist Mary Meeker, neither of whom attended the meetings in February, which were, of a, which were a series of informal off-the-record discussions with the Trump administration officials and Republican lawmakers. I wonder which lawmakers. Hmm, Leffler? Burr? Mr. Callahan described the Hoover, briefings in a, the Hoover briefings in a lengthy email he wrote to David Tepper, who is the founder of a well-known hedge fund called Appaloosa Management, and one of his senior lieutenants about the level of concern among American officials over the spread of the virus domestically. In the email, he also touched on how ill-prepared health agencies appeared to be to combat the pandemic. Inside Appaloosa, the email circulated among employees, who in turn briefed at least two outside investors on the more worrisome parts of Callanan's email. This is according to people who received the briefings. Those investors in turn passed that information on to their own contacts, ultimately delivering aspects of the readout to at least seven investors and at least four money management firms around the country within 24 hours. And by late afternoon, two days later on February 26th, the day the email bounced from Appaloosa to other trading firms, U.S. stock markets fell, close to 300 points from their high the previous week. The Hoover Institution has close relations with the Trump administration, and the White House has pulled from its ranks to fill top positions. Josh Rao, one of the White House economists addressing the Hoover crowd on February 24th, has returned to the institution where he worked previously. Ken Hassett, we've heard about him, who moderated the panel and served as the chairman of the White House Council for Economic Advisors, is now a Hoover Institution fellow. Dr. Scott Atlas, a Hoover fellow and Stanford professor known for his, uh, you know, herd immunity bullshit, was named to Mr. Trump's coronavirus task force in August. Pushing herd immunity on behalf of investors. But legal experts say that briefings by administration officials are a very different situation, and it's not apparent that any of the communications about the Hoover briefings violated securities laws. 
the Justice Department and the SEC would have several hurdles to clear before establishing the Appaloosa and other funds that received insights from Mr. Callanan, either directly or through intermediaries, acted improperly. So that'd be hard to prove. But uh, Lindsey Graham acted improperly, and it won't be hard to prove, because lordy, there are tapes. He broke the law. 18 U.S. Code 607, I believe, when he stood in the hallway of Congress and asked people to donate money to him. That is very against the law. That's a three-year sentence. Yet he refused to follow the rules, the Senate rules and the judiciary, when there was not a quorum. You have to have nine members, two of which in the, uh, have to be in the minority party, in order to conduct any business. There was only one member there from the Democratic Party. But as I said, Lindsay just gaveled right through it like he has before. And they've advanced Amy Coney Barrett on as the nominee for the Supreme Court. Uh, we'll be right back with Democratic candidate for New Jersey's 4th District, Stephanie Schmid. Later, I'll speak with someone who successfully emigrated to Canada after Trump won in 2016, and he's written a book about it. So stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. This episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by Field of Greens by Brickhouse Nutrition. The pandemic didn't just test our country's economic endurance. It exposed how, you know, how important it is that we keep our immune system healthy. And that's why I recommend you take the superfood powder called Field of Greens by Brickhouse Nutrition. And you do it every day. While other health products boast about one vegetable, Field of Greens is packed with 18 clinically researched essential fruits and vegetables, plus green tea, ginger, turmeric, and beets. And this powerful combination not only supports heart health, but it can support a healthy immune system, a healthy metabolism, blood pressure, and digestion. Field of Greens is loaded with antioxidants, pre- and probiotics, and just one scoop in a glass of water and you stir and you're done. So why settle for one vegetable when you can have the entire Field of Greens? Add Field of Greens to your daily routine and see why their powdered greens have earned more than 2,000 five-star reviews. Go to fieldofgreens15.com to get 15% off your first order and use promo code BEANS at checkout. That's fieldofgreens fifteen one five dot com. That's available in two flavors, regular and wild berry. Both taste great. Again, that's fieldofgreens15.com. And don't forget promo code BEANS. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time to flip it blue. I'm And joining me today is Democratic candidate in New Jersey's 4th District. She's a retired United States Foreign Service officer, an attorney, a human rights leader with a record of serving her community, bachelor's degree from Yale, law degree from UC Berkeley, amazing, amazing credentials. And she is running against her opponent, Chris Smith, who's been there for 39 years. (laughs) So everybody, please welcome Stephanie Schmidt. Stephanie, it's great to talk to you. Thank you, Allison. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. I love the Daily Beans. Oh, thank you so much. That's so wonderful. We love you. And uh, I am really excited to talk about this this seat in particular because it is so flippable and it's been held by Chris Smith for what term would this be if he is he running for? This would be his 20th term, his 40th year in office. He was elected a few months after I was born in 1980. Um, so it is 
well past time for a change here in NJ4. I think folks across the political spectrum can agree that nobody's interests are served when somebody sits in a seat for 40 years. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. Uh, and can you tell us a little bit about NJ4, uh, sort of some of the characteristics of like, what does your what does your district look like? Yeah, so this is a, a true suburban swing district. And it's one of the last red to blue flip opportunities in the entire Northeast because Democrats in New Jersey actually flipped every other congressional seat in the 2018 elections. So I we sit in truly central Jersey. There's a debate about whether that exists, but we believe it does. And there we are. I have Monmouth County, a little bit of Mercer County, and part of Ocean County, which is shared with uh, Congressman Andy Kim and hopefully future Congresswoman Amy Kennedy. And so we stretch basically from the Jersey Shore uh, on the far east all the way over to the suburbs of Trenton in Mercer County. Um, This is very suburban, uh, and it is 50% of our registered voters are unaffiliated or independent voters. And so we've made a real concerted effort to put together a coalition of Democrats independents, and even moderate Republicans who are deeply disturbed by uh, the chaos that this administration has wrought. And uh, we're really excited about this flip opportunity. Our sort of internal polling from August shows that this race is tied when voters hear a really brief message about Congressman Smith's extreme record, particularly on health care and his longevity in office, contrasted with my service to the country and the fact that I'm a first-time candidate, not a career politician. And then we've been doing phone banking for months now. We've made over 75,000 calls by volunteers across our district in New Jersey and the country um, to these independent voters that we think are likely to flip and vote blue uh, up and down the ballot this year. And we are having really wonderful success there. Uh, Strong support in the upper 60s with voters that we've been able to talk to. And those results are being borne out in the uh, early ballot returns here in New Jersey. So Mm. this is the first time that we're doing a primarily vote-by-mail election after doing that in July with the primary. And I get ballot return updates every day. And we have been holding strong with tens, you know, thousands, and we're now close to 10,000 more Democratic ballots returned than Republicans in this district. And um, it's really incredible. We actually have more Democrats who have voted in my district than some Dems and other uh, districts in New Jersey represented by a sitting Democratic congressperson. So we know there's a ton of enthusiasm here about flipping this seat. And I just think it has to do with my um, opponent, the state of the country, and the skills that I bring uh, to this race. Mm. It reminds me so much of, uh, you know, some of our California listeners, the California listeners out here. We had Orange County, uh, you know, which is between San Diego and Los Angeles. And it was, it's been in red hands for a very long time. It's very suburban. And then in 2018, we flipped every seat. And I think it has a lot to do with the way that suburban, specifically women, and those who are unaffiliated with a party are just not taking kindly to the rhetoric coming out of the White House. 
Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And we saw that in 2018, as you said, 54% of registered voters in my district are women. And that's really our, you know, our target voter. I'm talking to a mom who is concerned about how she is going to be um, putting food on the table and paying her mortgage in a state that got incredibly hard hit early on by the pandemic. We have massive unemployment in my district. Um, and then we also have, you know, some of the highest state and local taxes in the country and a tax bill enacted by my opponent's party that targeted homeowners in California and New Jersey with a state and local tax deduction cap of $10,000. And so that SALT cap, um, we would like to see repealed. And that repeal was put in the HEROES Act by uh, wonderful Democrats in both New Jersey and California, I think, understanding that um, we're talking about middle-class homeowners in our states, you know, teachers and firefighters and police officers who can no longer afford to live in the communities they work and serve in because of these high taxes and the double taxation that we pay to Washington. And then these are also moms who are deeply concerned about the rise in gun violence. You know, in New Jersey and also in California, we've got pretty strong um, gun safety reform laws, but we know we're only as safe as the weakest state in this country. And for the life of me, I and my constituents, you know, we can't understand why Congress can't get together and renew the assault weapons ban, why we can't pass universal background checks and enact um, red flag laws. You know, these are common sense things that the vast majority of Americans agree on. And I'm really proud to be a mom's demand uh, candidate with distinction on gun sense issues because um, it's, it's not partisan and it should have been enacted a long time ago. And then these are also women who, you know, they're not dues paying members of Planned Parenthood. They're not prone to marching in the streets and protesting on a daily and weekly basis, but they don't want their daughters or their sons to grow up in a world where women have less rights and don't have the fundamental right to bodily autonomy and decision-making about when, whether, and how to bring children into this world. And those are the things that we are still fighting for in 2020. And that's what's on the ballot. And I think it's really going to bring people out. We felt this way before the pandemic and the economic crisis, but I think that that is just highlighted for so many people, the massive gaps in our policies, whether you want to talk about health care or child care or paid family leave. I mean, Americans are hurting right now and we need leadership in Washington um, desperately. Mm. Yeah, and I I see this across the country too. My my mother, for example, she's a Republican. She lives in Arizona, but she has put together multiple grassroots campaign uh, groups of Republican women. She did Republican women for Kristen Cinema. She now she's doing Republican women for Mark Kelly. And you've got some of that going on in in New Jersey's fourth, don't you? Yes, yes, we do. We have a Republicans for Stephanie group that formed after I won the primary in July with more than 70% of the vote in a three-way race. Hmm. And, you know, folks really, my message of um, people over partisanship and country before political party, you know, I just like you, I, I served our country and I've spent my career working with Republicans and Democrats. 
I've served under various administrations. I grew up in a family that um, was Republican and Democrat and is now independent and Democrat. And, you know, I just believe in putting our communities and our families first and working together to get things done in Washington. And I think that 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 message resonates with people who are deeply frustrated by what's going on in Washington. They want infrastructure reform. They don't want crumbling roads and ports and bridges. And they don't understand why that's a partisan issue. And it shouldn't be. So I'm running on a platform about rolling up my sleeves and getting the work done for the people of New Jersey and the people of this country. And I think that resonates um, across the, the political spectrum with voters who are just sick and tired of career politicians voting their own interests, voting to get reelected year after year, voting for the people that are funding their campaigns. And in my opponent's case, that means um, extreme right to life groups. You know, 70 percent of the money that funds him comes from out of state, from people who uh, want him to consider continue pursuing this agenda that is focused on banning access to birth control and abortion and outlawing gay marriage and gay adoption rather than helping middle-class families in New Jersey put food on the table and pay their bills. Yeah. And I mean, to, you know, talk about issues that don't help anyone in your specific uh, district. And, you know, you have here that he hasn't had a town hall in over 27 years, so there's really no accountability there. And you've committed to hosting 39 in your first term alone. And I think that that transparent leadership, that servant leadership will, will, you know, just goes over so much better in a, in a, in a district like NJ4. Exactly. I mean, we all deserve to be heard by our representatives because your baseline duty is to represent your constituents and their interests. And how can you do that if you're not in the community and listening to them. This is actually the district we believe with the longest gap in a public town hall in the entire country. And my opponent is on record saying that he doesn't want to go to town halls because he doesn't want himself or his staff to be yelled at by angry community members. And so, um, sir, First of all, that's what you signed up for. And second of all, if people are angry and yelling at you, then you're not doing your job correctly. So, yeah, we wanted to make this commitment to do a town hall every month in each of our three counties. If I am lucky enough to be the first ever congresswoman in NJ4 to show people what accountable and transparent leadership looks like. And I think that's really exciting to a lot of people from high school students all the way up to seniors who just want to be seen and heard. Yeah, he doesn't represent the people. He represents his out-of-town donors. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's about... That describes a lot of candidates uh, uh, in opposition to Democrats running that I've spoken to. And I want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned his record on health care. I want to hit to your uh, platform here for just a few minutes before we before we go. Tell us uh, the differences here on, on health care between, between you and your opponent. 
Absolutely. So Congressman Smith has voted over 53 times to strip Americans and New Jerseyans of their health care. He's voted for junk plans that gut our insurance and don't protect people with pre-existing conditions like myself. There are over 300,000 of us in NJ4 alone. And wow. he's repeatedly voted against bills that would lower the cost of prescription drugs, uh, including for our seniors. Um, so I believe that healthcare is a human right, not a privilege. I support legislation that would achieve universal coverage by automatically enrolling people who are uninsured or become uninsured or underinsured through job loss, which we're seeing a lot of right now, in a publicly funded program such as Medicare, but we preserve employer-based insurance for those who want to keep it. And then I also uh, support legislation that is going to strengthen protections for people with pre-existing conditions and empower the federal government to negotiate the price of prescription drugs for all Americans, regardless of whether they have public or private health insurance. And I think that we need to do a lot more to expand health care coverage to talk about things like reproductive health care, substance abuse treatment, and mental health care services. And we're seeing, you know, funding for mental health care uh, declining right now in the midst of the pandemic and isolation when we know that depression and anxiety are on the rise. So I think we need to do a whole lot more to keep Americans healthy and safe from a holistic standpoint. And just to put a little pandemic overlay on the issue of healthcare, because I know that's what we're all thinking about, my opponent is actually the ranking Republican on that subcommittee that is supposed to be working with international organizations on global public health. So he was in a unique position to build bipartisan support for the World Health Organization and tackling the pandemic, um, not just in New Jersey, but across the U.S. and globally. And instead, he's been writing op-eds attacking the World Health Organization, standing by silently as this administration refuses to trust in science and data and facts. And it is an extreme disappointment to myself and the rest of New Jerseyans and I believe all Americans. Um, you know, I served in the Obama administration. I saw the pandemic response plan and all the funding that was there. And that was passed down from and improved upon from the Bush administration, which also had a comprehensive pandemic response plan. And this administration literally defunded those teams and tore up the playbook. And here we are because of a complete abdication of responsibility and duty to this country to keep us safe and healthy. And so I want Washington to fix this and make sure that we can move forward and live healthy and safe lives. Uh, it's just when those when that special interest money gets in there, it's like everything goes out the window. Um, we've already talked about infrastructure and we've already talked about um, the SALT deduction cap, taxes and debt. Talk a little bit just uh, briefly about um, the environment, because I know that you support rejoining the Paris Climate Accord. I do. You know, the environment is so important to those of us that live in coastal states in particular. You can't, you know, I took my first steps on the boardwalk at the Jersey Shore, and I want to make sure that the, those boardwalks and those shorelines are there for 
my great grandchildren and those that will never meet. And I think so we take both a hyper local approach and a global approach because we need both to combat climate change. And so one of the things I talk about on the campaign trail is we have to get back into the Paris Climate Agreement because when the U.S. pulled out, we saw some of the world's biggest polluters, including China, renege on their commitments. And so the world is less safe and secure on a number of fronts when the U.S. abdicates its responsibility to lead and negotiate on the global stage. And we need to get back into that leadership role on a whole host of fronts, including combating climate change. And I'm really fully committed to fully funding our federal emergency management program, our flood insurance program, and working to make sure we're doing everything we can to reduce carbon emissions. by that 2050 at the latest uh, international deadline so that we can have a clean and safe future for generations to come. Yeah. And there's millions of jobs to be had in it as well. I I know I served. I know so many veterans who would love to have their school paid for to go to work in green energy. And I I just don't understand. I don't understand the, the the denial, even and Rick Perry, he's in charge of the Department of Energy. He knows better. He flipped Texas to wind and made a ton of money. There's money in it if they would just take it and open their eyes and stop taking the the easy money from, you know, from special interest groups, including fossil fuels. So I appreciate your stance on that. And uh, something very important, I know, to the voters in, in New Jersey's fourth district is education. Talk just uh, briefly about your education plan. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a proud product of New Jersey public schools, which are some of the best in the nation. And we need to continue to lead in and invest in our teachers and our students, which are the future of our economy and our country. So I support um, expanding access to student loan forgiveness programs, um, making sure that people can go to community and state colleges at low or no cost depending on their ability to pay, expanding access to trade schools and, um, as you said, programs that are going to retrain folks in new, highly skilled, uh, high-paying green jobs. And then we need to also talk about those early years, which are so critical. I support universal pre-K and investment in our kids at the youngest ages. And, of course, our teachers need to be paid what they are worth Uh, they've been thrust into the front lines of this pandemic. And, you know, I've seen my next door neighbor, the teachers, so many of my friends are teachers and they are working night and day to keep our kids uh, safe and healthy and well-educated and they deserve to be honored for that work. And it's a, it's a debt we owe to them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, I really appreciate you bringing that up too, because I mean, it's, it's so important it's just it's just so important to everything is connected, right? Healthcare, education, jobs, economy, taxes. Uh, you're supported by unions, um, and you you want to protect collective bargaining rights. I mean, it just it seems like a no brainer. And I hope that uh, I hope the constituents and the early vote returns are indicative of of what's going to happen there in New Jersey's fourth district. Can you tell the listeners? Uh, where they can support you, contribute, or help doing, you know, because you said you've got a lot of phone banking and text banking. Uh, We've got a lot of folks who love to do that. So tell us where we can find that information. Yes. Well, if you go to our website, Allison, it is stephaniefornewjersey.com. And that's all spelled out. So it's long, but 
Stephanie with a P-H-A-N-I-E-F-O-R-N-E-W-J-E-R-S-E-Y.com. And we've got big pink buttons at the top that uh, you click on that say volunteer or donate. We'd love um, to have more volunteers and more donations in these critical last few weeks so that we can keep reaching every single voter and make sure each voice is heard and each ballot is counted. I think it's critically important. And I did just want to make a plug for all the veterans in my district. I know that veterans um, issues are really important to you. They're important to me as someone who served overseas with so many uh, honorable folks. And we have the largest veterans community in New Jersey here in Ocean County. And I just want them to know that I will fight for veterans health care and housing. And also I would be really proud to be a co-sponsor of the I am Vanessa Guillen Act because combating sexual harassment and assault of women in the military, at the State Department, and across this country is an issue near and dear to my heart that I've been working on since I was a teenager. Um, And so I would like to lead on those issues for all of us, but especially our female veterans and military members who deserve so much better than what they're getting right now. Well, once you're elected, if you need any team members, I am a Female, I am a veteran, disabled due to military sexual trauma, post-traumatic stress, uh, and I appeared in the Invisible War, and I've fought mercilessly to take the hands to take to take the decision to prosecute uh, rape and sexual assault cases out of commanders, uh, and and put it in some sort of a you know a, a, a third party uh, on non-biased somebody you know a, a group of civilians that don't have a, a stake and so if you need anything from me i'm here for you too so please reach out thank you so much allison um from one survivor to another um this sisterhood is strong and we are going to change the world for the better including for our daughters and granddaughters and it would be an honor and a privilege to work with you on this issue and so many others Thank you for having me on the Daily Beans, Flip It Blue. It's an honor, and we would be so excited to have everyone's support in these last critical few weeks. All right, everybody. Stephanie Schmid for NewJersey.com. She's running as the Democratic candidate in New Jersey's 4th District against 20-term incumbent Chris Smith. We can do this. So thanks so much for being on the Flip It Blue segment today. Thank you, Allison. All right, everybody. Stick around. We'll be right back with the interview. Hey, everybody. Have you ever thought about your cellular health? I mean, neither. I hadn't been. And I mean, why would we? Because I'll tell you, cells are the foundation of our health and they make us who we are. And one of the important building blocks of our cells is called NAD, which is vital for things like sleeping, breathing, eating, drinking, you know, some of the most important stuff that we don't think about all the time. The bad news is, as we get older, our bodies don't make NAD like they used to. But here's the good news. There's a way to boost your NAD levels thanks to true niogen. True niogen helps counteract the effects of time on your body by promoting cellular repair. It also helps with healthy aging by supporting cellular function and metabolism to maintain overall health and well-being. True niogen can also help you increase your cellular energy. It replenishes the decline in NAD due to stressors such as lack of sleep or overeating, so you can keep up with your active lifestyle. Taking true niogen also helps with cellular defense in the face of stresses such as alcohol consumption or immune stress, which is a form of cellular stress. True Niogen has caught the attention of the scientific community with its remarkable ability to boost NAD, and they have over 10 clinical studies to prove it. Give yourselves give yourselves and your cells a boost with True Niogen. Right now, new customers can save $20 on a three-month supply by going to trueniogen.com slash dailybeans. That's T-R-U- 
N-I-A-G-E-N.com slash Daily Beans to save $20 on a three-month supply. TrueNiagen.com slash Daily Beans. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Joining me today for the interview is the author of the new book, I Actually Did It, Becoming Canadian Because of Trump. Everyone welcome Dr. Stephen Shanebart to the show. Stephen, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so excited to talk to you about this uh, about this book because it's, first of all, you you on the evening Trump was elected, right? Uh, I I believe Canada's immigration website crashed, right? Uh, That's right. But uh, a lot of Americans were researching how to move to Canada. So right. tell us a little bit about That's this. That's why it crashed because uh, there was such an upsurge in Americans researching how to move to Canada that night, right? And and apparently it was it's very difficult uh, to do that. So you wrote a book about it. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the story. What, what what prompted you to write the book? Uh, and and again, you know, obviously, you you started researching it because of Trump. But what prompted you to to become Canadian? Well, I have like kind of a short answer because people ask me a lot, why did you do this? Why did you move to Canada? And I have this kind of prepped answer, which is brief. It's not very comprehensive, but I say, because a mentally ill and cruel man took power in my country, and even worse, the people chose him. So I don't know. I can go into more depth, but uh, I knew I knew about Donald Trump. I mean, I'm a native New Yorker. I've known about him my whole life, and I knew we were dealing with someone had elected someone uh, that would be not like any previous president, not like any previous. Republican president, and uh, I had the warning signs went off in my head, and uh, I started looking into it, and I kept going, and I kept going, and it was was difficult, but I was very determined, and I thought a lot of people would follow me, and I'd have a lot of company, but uh, I found out I was one of the very few that actually did it, and every time, the reason I named the book I actually did it is because years later, as I was in the midst of it, People would say, oh, wow, I heard about people saying they wanted to move to Canada, but you're the first person I know that actually did it. Mm-hmm. And I would hear that so much that one of my friends said, why don't you just call the book I actually did it? So that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, aptly named. Um, and, and you bring up, you know, you're a New Yorker, and I feel like New Yorkers specifically knew more about Trump than the rest of the United States did. Now, obviously, there were a lot of us who who knew but didn't and didn't like him but i feel like new yorkers have a very specific perspective on the man can you tell us a little bit about that sure uh and i write about this a little bit in the book um i knew about trump first of all he was always in the the local newspapers in the gossip columns and trump did this and trump was at this party and trump was with this woman and his his uh affairs and his marriages uh, and you know, multiple marriages. So that was always in the newspaper and I just couldn't stand it. I always thought he was not a great character and I wasn't very interested. But the media, the local media in New York was always pushing him in our face, just like it is happening nationally. But it was, this was the, you know, the 80s, the 90s. So, and also I know, I'm, I'm cautious saying too much, uh, but I know Several people, I'm, I'm one degree of separation. I know multiple people that know him and have told me some terrible stories that they wouldn't surprise people, but they're even worse than kind of what we hear about that of their encounters with him. People that uh, have done 
business with him or chosen not to do business with him because of how he is. So uh, in many ways, uh, I just knew about him in a much deeper way and, and for many decades than uh, I guess the average American I, you know, in other states that just knew him from The Apprentice or something. Now, it took you a very long time to become uh, to get uh, citizenship in Canada. Can you tell us a little bit, um, you know, without revealing too many details about the book, but because I'm, you know, you go over it in depth uh, in the book, and everyone should read it. It's it's really it's an incredible journey. But could you talk about just some of the some of the obstacles that you faced and how long it took? Yes, it took three years in my case. Uh, in my case, and this may, that may not apply, it doesn't apply to a lot of people, but it will apply to a fair number of them. In my case, I had to get one year of Canadian work experience. I had to work in Canada for a year, a minimum of a year, before I would uh, accumulate enough points to be approved by one of their paths, paths towards citizenship called express entry. Uh, it's Canada this way, this express entry operates on a point system and you have to accumulate enough points. Canada is, everyone thinks Canada is, uh, you know, just so open and their immigration policy is so much more generous, but except for refugees fleeing a, uh, you know, country where there's all kinds of genocides and things like that. Uh, if you just want to become a citizen there, like if you're from the U S it's not so easy. And they have a kind of a merit-based system where you have to show you can contribute to the uh, Canadian economy. You have to, for instance, I got a lot of points. I have a PhD, so I got a lot of points from that. They, they test you on your English and or French speaking ability. Uh, so a lot, like for instance, a lot of people that emigrate to the United States would not be accepted in Canada. So what I had to do was all kinds of things. But first, the biggest thing was I had to get my one year of Canadian work experience, which not everyone is going to have to do, but some will. And in my case, I'm a psychologist, so I had to become licensed in Canada, or what they call registered, a registered psychologist. And that was so bureaucratic and took almost a year in my case because of they, they miscounted the number of hours and I did in, in a, an internship. And they wanted to make sure that they you have enough experience as a psychologist because they want experienced people. So all they focused on, or much of what they focused on was my internship, which was in 1989, okay? 1989 was part of my graduate school. And I said, I've been working as a psychologist in New York City for 20 years, and that was not of any interest to them. Like they just wanted these hours from when I was on my internship as a student. I was ridiculous, and uh, and they miscounted it, and I had to find some supervisor who who was willing to sign off on it for a while. And I said, that's 30 years ago. What if she's dead, you know? And anyway, it turns out they miscounted the hours, and I didn't need any of that, but that set me back three months, so it's very bureaucratic. And then I had to work for a year after I was licensed, and then I had to apply or fill out the application because I had to complete the one year. And that took six months to a year for the application process. So, uh, so it was ridiculous. And what I um, was saying is that they, uh, th that uh, even even after I, I was uh, all done, they needed proof after working for a year as a psychologist and spending the year before that becoming licensed as a psychologist. And then I worked for a year. The federal government, in processing my application for citizenship for immigration, they they insisted that uh, I prove once again that I am indeed a psychologist, even though 
I spent a year getting licensed in Ontario and a year working as a psychologist in Ontario. But the federal government just said, you have to prove you're a psychologist. And so God forbid one and one part of the bureaucracy would communicate with another. So it's a very arduous process, uh, you know. Yeah. And, and during that whole time, were you uh, on a work visa or like how does that program work? Yes, yes. That's a good question. I was on a work visa. And I worked for one, uh, I can only work for one employer. And, you know, if I lost my job there, I would have to leave Canada. So uh, I felt very, after work being my own boss, being having my own practice for 20 years, I felt a big loss of autonomy, but uh, being tied to this one person. And uh, I also wasn't making nearly as much money. So, and I had to fly back and forth quite frequently, too, because I was still seeing clients in New York. So I flew so many times, and that was very expensive. Uh, you know. But uh, then finally, a year ago, November 2019, I received my, um, my permanent residency, which is like a green card in the United States, which allows me to be just like any other citizen in many, most ways. Like I could have my own private practice, start my own private practice in Toronto. I could work for uh, different people. I was no longer just tied to one employer. Ah. And I felt much more grounded, I have to tell you. Yeah. No, but that's not full citizenship or, or uh, dual citizenship, right? That's it's uh, it's almost see people. It's having a green card is similar. It's I have I have everything that a Canadian citizen can do. I can do. I'm on the Canadian health care, government health care. Uh, I can fly, you know, all restrictions on flying. If you're only allowed a Canadian citizen or permanent resident, they kind of they allow for both. The only thing I can't do is vote in Canada yet. Or uh, I think run for political office or something like that. But if you think about it, most people voting is very important. But in terms of one's individual life, have I can do everything else that a citizen can do. So I can. That's why I was able to start my own business, and I'm allowed to pretty much do everything. And in a year and a half, I just have to live here a year and a half, and then take a language test, my English test. I had to, you know, so many things like doesn't matter if you're from England, you have to take an English test. <laughs> so a three-hour English test, by the way, just like as if you're, yeah. So uh, I'll have to take yet another English test, from what I understand, even though, I, of course, I already took one and <laughs> was bored out of my mind, and I'll have to take another one. And then I can become a full citizen, about a year and a half. Ah, well, this, so it seems like not only is this like a memoir, but this is a how-to on how to oh, emigrate. Oh, definitely, yes. Definitely. And that's that's it's part memoir, but it's very much how to because I thought that a lot of people may enter. A lot of people I know are entertaining the idea, but they really don't have any idea how to start or what's involved. And I actually have a section written by a Canadian immigration attorney describing the different programs, different paths towards citizenship. And I also outline in detail what I had to go through. Like I went through one particular program, a very common one, but there are others. So I talked about all the documents and things just to give people an idea uh, what to expect. And then I had the immigration lawyer write uh, a part of the book about the actual different programs to facilitate citizenship into Canada. Now, um, I've got a couple minutes left here. Uh, and I want to know now, what it, what is it like to be an American Living among Canadians, how do they view you? That's a great question, and I actually have a lot of feelings about that uh, <laughs> because I we hear Canadians are so nice, uh, and actually Canadians are, are largely generalizing, but largely very politically correct. 
Like if you're at a party and you uh, insult a certain race or a certain people from a certain country, a certain ethnicity, they really will be very disapproving of that. And, and it's totally unacceptable. Uh, and any group, except one group of people, people from the United States of America, are it's like open hunting. And not everyone is like that here, but you'd be it's surprised at how many people just even if I say I'm from New York, some people they don't they don't hear that part and they'll just say, Oh, so do you carry a gun everywhere you go? And ridiculous things like that. Uh, or oh, I guess you've never been outside the United States, you don't know anything, you think America's the uh, the whole world and it's so there's a lot of anti-American uh, stuff, and it's just – it's gotten up worse because of Trump. But even even a friend of mine today, she talked about how that's what's scary about the United States is they, they voted for Trump. So I think there's a tendency to see all Americans as sort of southern, you know, southern rural kind of voters the, the tend, who tend to be the Trump supporters and not understand that there's <laughs> such a – I mean Hillary won the popular vote. And that in areas like where I'm from, New York or Los Angeles, you know, most I mean, Trump won 18 percent of the vote in New York City. Hillary won 82 percent. But that doesn't fit the kind of stereotype that the Canadians have. I guess that's what they see in the media. Um, I mean, the more educated ones know that that have been to places like New York. But there's quite a few that some guy said to me last week. Well, he said how, how there are different ethnicities in Toronto. You see different colors. And I, I, this is after I told him in New York. He said, yeah, it's not like where you're from. Huh. <laughs> and I said, that's not quite correct. I said, Queens is maybe the most diverse place on earth. And he said, well, from where we, where we stand, it all looks the same to us. And they feel free to just say that. Well, well, and so not all, not all. So I've been holding my tongue for two years, but I'm beginning now. I feel more, more grounded and I, I try to explain a lot to them, but sometimes that when it's really obnoxious i just i just fire back like one, one guy said well there are you know 80 percent of us uh don't want four out of five four out of five of us don't want america the border to be open to you americans do you know that four out of five and i said really was that the first time all five of you were in the same room at the same time hmm. <laughs> so you know i've learned to just kind of give push back <laughs> a little because they, they just feel uninhibited not all I, I really want to say not all but it's a it's annoying because they feel no no guilt in kind of just stereotyping and attacking. Mm. So yeah, yeah, and I know a lot of Americans do that to folks in the South uh, unfairly, and so it's right. got to kind of be like a huh, wow. It's um, right. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of eye opening. I I I wouldn't uh, I I have an image of Canada, you know, opening their arms and, and welcoming us all, and and understanding that the majority of us did not vote for Trump, but um, it doesn't seem that no. that's, that's the no. Uh, there's a, a certainly a significant amount that feel that way, but there's quite a few people who, you know, just don't get it. So, yeah. Well, can you tell everyone where they can find your book? And again, if there's some, there's humorous, insightful stories. It's a memoir, but it's also a how-to. You know, in case you're, you're worried about what happens in November, uh, where can where can folks find your book? Sure. Uh, it, it 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 does have a lot of funny stories. People are surprised. They think it's going to be just a dry immigration book. But I talk about a, a crazy date I went on. I, t I have kind of all kinds of personal anecdotes, funny little stories that I wrote. So and it's available on Amazon. 
com, just like most things are. Uh, so I think it's also, on, yes, it's on the Barnes & Noble site as well. But those are uh, those are the two ones. I mean, Amazon has most of the traffic. So Amazon.ca for Canadians, Amazon.com for Americans. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. The book is called I Actually Did It, Becoming, a Can- Becoming Canadian Because of Trump. Uh, Dr. Stephen Shanebart, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Everybody stick around right after this. We'll have the good news. Stay with us. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack. They have cracked the code when it comes to making snacks that taste amazing, but have close to no sugar. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain less than one gram of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and they're only 150 calories. They're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle, and they're the perfect snack for anyone who wants to eat better or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. Personally, I've been trying to eat better, but I get tripped up by munching on, you know, graze. I graze all day. I love snacks. And since I've been having the Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars, it's helped so much. They have a perfect balance of sweet and salty. They're so delicious, and they got a good crunch to them. They have whole nuts and seeds, and they're still soft and chewy, so they're easy on my teeth. But they come in delicious flavors like pecan almond, sea salt and dark chocolate, which is my favorite, and peanut butter and dark chocolate. And they also have the, like just this incredible like cinnamon it's just pumpkin seeds it's so good everything you have to try these they're packed with protein they're filling they keep me full and they're satisfying they're the perfect snack and they you know they give you a little energy and you can indulge your sweet tooth without any guilt in addition to being keto friendly they're gluten-free plant-based non-gmo no soy no trans fat no sugar no alcohols and no artificial colors so enjoy Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars while working, running errands, or after your workout. I, I do them after my runs. This It's so good. It gives me just that boost that I need. So try it for yourself and you'll see. We have a special deal for um, for the listeners here. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering code DAILYBEANS at checkout. To get started, go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product. Then enter the code DAILYBEANS at checkout to save 20% on your purchase. Monk Pack. Good food you can count on. And we thank you for sponsoring the podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we're blown on good news is on the way. Oh, so happy. It's Friday. And that means it's time to read the good news and confessions and everything corrections with Amy Carrero. Amy, how are you? Hey, I'm good. I just texted you. <laughs> I was like, I'm, in, I'm, I'm really enjoying my Canadian bubble of good leadership and no COVID barely. And it's really a different world up here, guys. And I'm getting pretty Canadian. I just have to say. I'm getting pretty Canadian. Getting too comfortable up here. Listen, I'm getting nicer. My sense of cynicism is like at 0%. I mean, not totally, but like almost, you know, Uh, being waving at strangers. I don't even know who I am. (laughs) We will recognize you when you get back to Los Angeles. (laughs) You really won't. A bastion of kindness and good spirits. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Saying sorry for just about everything. Sorry. Yeah. And uh, I just spoke earlier in the show to a Canadian doctor who, like in November 2016, when Trump won, he decided he was going to be a Canadian citizen and it took him three years to do it. And he wrote a book about it. Oh, my and- God. But he did it. That I cannot wait to hear it. Oh my gosh, that's good. I, that would be like such a good read. And honestly, my work visa is still good till March. So like, I'm just saying, guys, if they let me stay, I might. I might stay. 
It's pretty nice from what I understand. Um, Indeed. Yeah, and their news. Because, you know, Mandy, our you know former producer before she got snatched up by BuzzFeed, she, uh, you know, is, is Canadian. And the news up there is just so yeah. nice. Oh, man. It's so nice. Like, they <laughs> today I was watching... Um, just like the local CTV or whatever. And I'm also in, in Vancouver Island, which is like even smaller than Vancouver. And it's really super nice. And people are very nice. And they were like, oh, and, um, you know, so-and-so up in uh, East Saanich, uh, they have their baking pie go- or their baking contest going on. And they're selling fresh apples if you get there before 7 a.m. And I'm just like, oh, my God, this is part of the news. Like, this is, oh, and we actually, sorry, I know I'm going on and on. But I was listening to the radio yesterday and like, the big news of the hour like the breaking news was that that we had our the production i'm working on had shut down the freeway from nine to midnight and so they're like you know the 17 freeway is not going to be open between nine to midnight and it was like big news and like people called in and were like very upset about it breaking news part of the freeways shut down for a minute (laughs) for filming yeah exactly love it oh awesome amazing i'm glad you're working too it's got to be good for the spirits me too it's so good. Speaking of the good spirits, uh, let's kick off this good news uh, segment. Let's wrap the week up. Uh, our first segment here is from Betty, pronouns she and her. And Betty says, about two months ago, I finally hit my saturation point with feeling totally depressed and freaked out about the election. And what I have learned that works for me about being in fear is that I have to get into action to get relief. So I started making calls to swing mm. states. AG, I am your age and I don't have a particularly techno- technology-reliant job, so needless to say, the technology interface for making calls in this remote world was a little daunting. I'm an Ivy League grad <laughs> and I was barely hanging on during these training Whoa. calls between the Slack channel and auto dialer. but nevertheless, she <laughs> persisted. Nothing was going to stop me from learning how to do this. Since then, I've started my own phone bank for my friends that are not technically savvy. We call it the No Shame Phone Bank. (laughs) There is no question too stupid, and I have trained about 50 people who now make calls with me regularly. I offer emotional and technological support uh, in my backyard for those who need it. Otherwise, we all come together on Wednesdays and Saturdays and support each other and make a ton of calls. It's a wonderful group, and even Elisa in her 70s is an expert in Pennsylvania voting laws. But the real good news, I know, is that we can feel the tide turning. After that horrific presidential (laughs) debate, the Republicans who used to want to argue with us now just shout Trump 2020 and hang up. They don't engage. (laughs) The undecided people (laughs) now almost always say that after the debate, they just can't let the guy stay in office. And the Dems cheer us on and really want the voting information, and some even text us back funny memes. (laughs) It's been a joy, <laughs> and it has kept me positive and sane. Also, I can't listen to news, any other news but yours anymore. You are my lifeline. Thanks Aww. for the community you've made and the motivation to make my own. Look at There's a photo. Wow. And then we get a pic. Oh, my gosh. First of all, this is a very nice-looking phone banking group, okay? Yeah. She really buried the lead here. Yeah, look at it. Look at all. They're very attractive. Ah, yes. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, ooh, they're so attractive. I've been in, alone in Canada too long. Um, that's so cool. I'm so glad that, that you know, um, Betty has found her peeps and she keeps finding more peeps and she's getting out there and, and finding a way to turn her, you know, disdain for this administration, which I share, into something positive. And that's so great. Mm. Yes, the No Shame Phone Bank. I love it. Love it. Hashtag No Shame Phone Bank. Okay, 
The next one is from Megs, pronouns she, her. She says, first, the good news. My partner and I own a small table shuffleboard business and we're also nationally ranked table shuffleboard players. I think it's safe to assume most listeners don't know what table shuffleboard is. Just think of it uh, as a bar version of curling. Mm. Oh, that's actually very helpful. Thank you. Earlier this year, our business was approached to contribute as a major sponsor for the first ever shuffleboard event to be aired on TV, specifically ESPN. Mm. Initially, we were told it would be for eight minutes of airtime, and we were a bit reluctant to contribute, but ultimately we decided it was too important of an event for our game and we should do it. Recently, we found out that ESPN was so impressed with the footage Mm -hmm. that they are not only giving us eight minutes of airtime, but one hour of airtime. My partner and I are very excited for this opportunity to bring Table Shuffleboard to the masses. So cool. Okay. Now for the confession part. Mm. Yesterday, we learned the event will be aired the evening of November 3rd, 2020. <laughs> we don't know the exact time slot yet, but I who am I kidding? It's disappointing, okay? I have very quickly processed through levels of grief, and I am at the point, if anyone wants to take a break from the election stuff, maybe check out the first televised table shuffleboard event on ESPN. If not, I understand. Thank you, Allison, DG, Amy, Mandy, and Jordan. You all have brought your voices into my world that make me feel normal and sane. I've been a patron since I learned about the pod on OA and am always present during the Friday happy hour sessions. Whoop, whoop. I love the new Zoom format. I actually got to speak last week. It was after AG left the group, but uh, uh, but it still brought me joy to have my small Nebraska voice heard. Thank you and take care. I've included a couple of photos of our senior podcat, Gino, oh, how funny, that we took on his first camping trip this past summer. His what the fuck face is because he had to have most of his teeth pulled on the side of his mouth. Regardless, I respect his expression. Oh, baby. He does have a very cute podcast. He does have a what the fuck face (laughs) because he's got no teeth on the right side of his mouth. He's like, hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's so great. I will be. Who doesn't love a podcast? Flipping back and forth to ESPN for the first first televised table shuffleboard event on ESPN on the evening of November 3rd. Fuck yeah, me too. I'll be I'll be very wasted either way. So I remember table shuffleboard. The, the Irish pub I used to do an open mic night at had one of these things in there. So it's like that long oh, cool. wooden, you know, it looks like yes. a bowling lane, and it's got like salt on it or something, so that the things like slide across. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's fun. I love it. I love it so much. And, and now it's going to be a major sport televised on ESPN. We love to see it. Mm-hmm. And not the Ocho. Regular old ESPN. That's an, that's amazing. That's right. Uh, next up. Uh-oh. Y- it's your turn. Mm. They want you to read this one, Amy. Okay. <clears throat> okay, here we go. Here we go. Diana Gagliardi from Diana Gagliardi. No pronouns. Please have Amy read this. It's very important, smiley face. My name is Diana, though I can be DG, and I am a longtime listener who has good news to share. I had a weird isolation. Okay, in late May, a good friend from college reached out about a writing project. He tweeted it, and a group of 30 writers across nine time zones came together to create a joint world. From there, we wrote, tracked down, art, edited, and published a book in August. Wow. At the same time, protests broke out, and my friend, who lives in Brooklyn, joined. 
AG, remember the 3,000 protesters stuck on the bridge between Brooklyn and Manhattan early on? He was there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Even so, I know, so awesome. I mean, so like... Ugh, what a what a time to be alive. Okay, she continues. Even so, he led this crew of people through all of it. And 10 weeks later, we published a book. Uh, Ash and Tan, Land of the Dust and Bone. It's okay. There's no right way to pronounce Ashton Tan. However, it's pronounced will be fine. Thank you for saying that because I am pretty sure I just butchered it. Okay, mm-hmm. she continues. Since we are publishing a book, we had to create a company. And since we wanted a podcast, sounds from the year between, we created Skullgate Media. So cool. I can now write and record a podcast and I am a published author for reals. All of this from one idea from one guy. Skullgatemedia.com. Amy. <clears throat> I think this is the part that's for me. Mm-hmm. Amy, before all this started, that one guy had been pushing me to watch Shira and talking about planning his Shira tattoo. Oh my gosh! In quotations, and gender bent Scorpia for Halloween. Oh, so cool. Chris Van Dyke of Brooklyn is a great, creative, caring guy. He's also the union rep for the NYHS where he teaches high school uh, English, so has been dealing with all of that as well. Wow, what a great guy. He has brought people together from all over the world to be creative, and there is so little that we can do to thank him. The tattoo he was thinking of was based on Shira, uh, on the Shira outline from the opening, and I would love it if Amy could give him some thoughts or ideas for his tattoo so I can give him her attention even for a moment. He hasn't stopped. Volume 2 just launched with new writers for a space epic where, again, people will explore a world together and expect to publish it in February. There are a lot of us doing work, but none of it would have happened without him. Thank you both. Oh, that's so sweet. Okay. Let's let's see here. Uh, he was thinking about a tattoo based off of the Shira outline from the opening. I'm guessing that's that's the that's when she's holding up the sword and there's like an outline of light. I think that's so cool. I don't even know. I mean, that's such a great idea. Another thing people have been doing a lot and they and that has been really beautiful is a tattoo of the failsafe, which might be cool to incorporate. Or if you wanted to do like the Shira outline with maybe like, you know, like pride flag colors coming out on the side. Look, I'm not a tattoo artist. I'm not even an artist, so I don't know. But these are just my two cents. Um, that is so, so cool. Chris Van Dyke of Brooklyn, thank you so much for all the work you do and uh, for your continued commitment to creativity during this crazy time. And you have a very good friend in Diana Gagliardi. Mm-hmm. And Diana Gagliardi included a photo of her pod cat. <gasps> oh my gosh. Too many cute cats. I mean, there's no such thing, but that's a very cute cat. A handsome boy. If it's a boy, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm digging the whiskers. Very cute. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. And uh, thank you for thank that. Thank you. Send in, you know, email us your uh, whatever, like, sketch idea he's looking into. I'll get it over to Amy. We could take a peek. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be very cool. All right. Next up, from Anonymous, pronouns she and her. A little over a month ago, I submitted some good news about finally gaining enough self-esteem to feel good about my prospects for a new job after being totally crushed after mm. losing my job just before COVID hit. I remember. AG and Mandy were so kind in their encouragement when they read it. I was very touched, but I didn't get that job. I was so bummed. My unemployment was about to run out. I wondered what I would do. I kept going, however, and today I got a job offer, which (gasps) I have accepted. Ten months out of work, and I finally have work I can do and will love. I am so thrilled. Ah, yay! (gasps) Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, man, what a long time to wait for a great opportunity. Ten months. That's really hats off. 
That's really, really, really hard. Yeah. Congratulations, too. And congratulations. Congrats. Awesome. I feel like since I read two, do you want to read two? Sure. I'll read this one. This is Confessions from okay. Tex. Hey, ladies of the beans. Ladies of the beans. I have an Ooh, I love that. <laughs> I know. I have an ER nurse confession. Oh, I like these. Uh, I was working the mm-hmm. night Trump tweeted out his COVID diagnosis. I was working triage, which means I could hear the TV in the waiting room, which for some reason was tuned to the news. I'd assumed most of our patients are feeling bad enough without having to be updated on the news in 2020. <laughs> yeah, right. Going, well, what was the news on in the waiting room? Anyway, my tech was transporting a patient to the back when the news broke. And since I'd already triaged all the patients currently in the waiting room, looked over the lab results we had back on them, gotten fresh vitals, etc. I took a second to Google the story and take a screenshot of the headline. When the tech got back, I showed it to her and we both started laughing. Maybe it's inappropriate, but it sure seemed like karma's might, karma might have been a bitch uh, and given 2020 a chance to redeem itself. P.S. My family has stayed healthy despite a fair amount of high-risk exposure on my part. Pet pick, tax attached. Oh, look at the kitty. And a oh, little human. Kitten. There's a little human with a little smiley face covering his face, which I love. Tiny human. So cute. Look at those little fingers. Very, very cute. I, listen, I I also cheered. I cheered when that happened. I'm not even going to lie about it. It is what it is. Yep. You're doing the Lord's work. So thank you, Confessions. <laughs> Dana and Mary Trump and I were on today, and, and, yes. and we were like, yeah, um, we don't feel bad, <laughs> you know, because like, you know how Kamala was on Maddo, and yeah. she's like, I, I wish them the best. I am truly, you know, no one des- deserves this. I'm so uh, yeah. worried for the family, the you know, Barron and, Tr- and Trump and sure, Melania. Sure. And uh, yeah, Mary and Dana and I were like, mm, that's very nice of you. Mm-mm. That's not, not, a good, good taking the high road. But also like, yeah, I could send all my best wishes, but really like they've got the best health care that we have to offer in this country. So really my best wishes are not going to do shit. Mm. So anywho. Mm. All right. <clears throat> Confession. These are my confessions from Barb. Pronouns, she, her. My quarantine confession is that I had to stop listening to Daily Beans podcast in the early days of quarantine as I had to take a mental health break from all the news, social media, and all current affairs podcasts, including the Daily Beans. But as I got used to our new normal, I returned to my daily dose of beans a few months ago, and you are once again my morning dose of sanity, insight, and it's time to kick some GOP assness. Thank you for being the voices in my head for the first hour or so of my workday. That's great. You look a little break never hurt anybody. You know, people had to take a little mental health break. That's fine. Yeah, Barb, you don't have to confess for that. This is a, this is a not, again, I was talking to Mary Trump today who was interviewed by Jane Fonda, right? The incredible Jane Fonda. (gasps) And, and they were talking, you know, Mary Trump was like, it's, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And, and Jane Fonda's like, no, it's a relay race. And some of us carry the baton while some of us rest. And so you take all the time you need. Take all the time you need. And let me just tell you something. If you really want to kind of, un, you know, just unwind, go check out Jane Fonda's Instagram account because it is very, very entertaining. Mm-hmm. She's wonderful. It's one of my favorite things to do at night. I, I'm not even kidding you. I'm like, did Jane update today? It's really great. And she's, she's got a blog, too, where she tells you, like, her favorite, like, shows she's binging and, like, also, like, recipes or, like, what she had for lunch. And it's all just amazing because, I mean, hello, Jane Fonda, hello. 
She also worked on um, Elena and the Princess. Uh, oh my God, I got, I'm getting my shows confused. But she also worked on Elena of Avalor. She played the villain for the first couple of seasons, but I never got to meet her. I know, I know. It's very sad. Maybe some, maybe someday. I love her so much, <sighs> so much, and I love seeing her love and her Lily too. Tomlin again on Grace and Frankie. Yes, what a team! Um, and then I'll go back and watch some. Some old nine to five. And I, you know, I had the distinct oh. honor of meeting and hanging out with Lily Tomlin at uh, <gasps> Steph Miller's impeachment party uh, a year ago. And oh, my God. That was just so fantastic. And um, I just I can't get enough of her. I really can't. Have you seen her Emmy speech or was it Golden Globes? It's really amazing. Uh-huh. It's worth a rewatch if you haven't. Where she was like, where's my purse? No one steal it. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so good great. it's so good uh and then we have one final confession from karina who says it must be silver fox season i now have a crush on sheldon whitehouse i do not blame you karina <laughs> he is a sexy justice tall just just justicey drink of water and uh but it's all yeah and also like it's always silver fox season right i mean it's mm, never a bad time pretty much I mean, you know, for me, you know? at least in these days. <laughs> and then everyone's me. kind of silver fox by default, you know. Yeah. Well, this was really fun. Yes, it was. I'm so I'm I love that I get to do the good news with you on Fridays. I really do. Oh. I love doing the good news. It really does really help shape my weekend, I have to say. Mhm. That and looking out and seeing the the leaves turn and fall and, uh. you know, <laughs> I'm really becoming a Canadian. I'm like stopping to watch the trees, the leaves fall. Come on. Like breaking news out of oh. Canada today. The leaves are changing. I'm watching them right out the window. Literally, that is the the high, the thing that happened that was most eventful today, <laughs> at least on my end. But I also didn't work today. So there there's that. Uh, well, it is always a pleasure to have you on. And then everybody at uh, 4 p.m. Pacific today, we will have our... Um, happy hour meet and greet so join us for that of course saturday for patrons the book club episode comes out the one with mary trump it's an hour we got we spoke to her for an hour and she answered all of our patrons questions not all of them there were tons that's amazing but a lot of them and she was such a just a just a treasure of a just a gem of a lovely human person just a gem a diamond an open book if you will wink wink love her so much and dana goldberg too so i'm very excited about that and uh any any final thoughts before we get out of here amy for the weekend yeah we're ramping up right we're ramping up we have how many days is it 18 is it 19 i'm not sure 18 but i have to say yeah okay 18 days we're almost there. We're almost, we can see the finish line. And going with uh, the great Jane Fonda's metaphor, if, you, if you're just too tired to, to, to carry that baton today, just pass it over to somebody who can and then get some rest and maybe the next day you can carry it for someone who needs it. Yep. We have all got each other. It takes a village to save democracy. So everybody, over the weekend, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of your mental health and take care of the planet. I've been AG. I've been Amy Carrero. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>